Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I remember being aware that it was potentially very dangerous and that we might be caught. And equally, at the same time, there's this sense of us all being in it together. And I think that that in some way protects you from some of the fear. Welcome to A Way to Go, a production of iHeartRadio and Fathom. I'm Geraldine Gerba. And I'm Pavia Rosati. When we hear about people being bit by the travel bug, we think of them as having an appreciation of new places not necessarily a compulsion to get up and go. But the two go hand in hand for today's guest, Tyler Weatherall, a travel writer who is groomed for the itinerant lifestyle from birth. Tyler's family, mom, dad, brother, and sister, moved house, as she likes to say, 13 times across five countries in just the first nine years of her life. She country hopped between the U.S., Italy, the south of France, Portugal, England, and beyond, learning Portuguese phrases, skiing the French Alps, scuba diving in St. Lucia. It was exciting and adventurous, and a little bit vague, too, as she wasn't quite sure why she was moving so much and why she was using a name that was different than the one on her passport. She learned the truth when she was nine years old. Her father was a fugitive, and the family was running from the FBI. Tyler, thank you so much for sharing your story today. Uh, You wrote that before you knew the truth about your life, you knew all this moving was strange, but liked the strangeness. How so? I guess as a kid, you always want to be a bit different. Uh, you know, we come up with these fantasies about what our life might actually be like. I don't know that you're, you, <laughs> your parents are really aliens or, or whatever it is that you come up with. And, and I guess as a kid, even then, I, I kind of liked that there was something that made me different from other people. Um, I liked that people thought it was a bit odd and would ask questions like, oh, why have you moved so much? But weirdly, it never made me really question what was happening, not deeply. Did you have an answer when they would say, why are you moving so much? I gave the same answers that my parents gave and never really questioned them, and even while giving different answers. And that's the strange thing about being a kid is you just accept your reality as as normal. You don't know anything else. And it takes meeting other people and comparing your life to others for you to start going, wait, this doesn't, this doesn't add up. So I'd say my dad was a businessman and that we left America because uh, they wanted us to experience the world. Um, and my mom wanted us to have an English education, which worked pretty mm. well. <laughs> um, that kind of thing. But it was always different. You wrote a book about your experience. It's called No Way Home, a memoir of life on the run that explores all these secrets from your past. You divide your story into two sections, before and after. You were just a child when you found out that your father was one of the kingpins of a drug cartel that had smuggled tons of Thai marijuana into the United States in the early 1980s. Well now, can you talk about that moment (laughs) of change (laughs) and how you perceive the world after? When I was nine years old, I came home from school one day and found there to be two strangers in our front room. And... I remember at the time, me and my sister were suspicious of this. We, we saw them, and we had this uncanny sense that something was going to go wrong. Um, and Mom came outside and told us to go stay with a friend that night. 
It was a few days after that, and we didn't think much of it afterwards. When she called me and my sister down into her bedroom one morning, um, we weren't going to go to school that day, and she explained that our father was a fugitive and he was on the run from the FBI. We'd all spent our entire childhoods on the run. She wouldn't tell us what he'd done at that point. She said that was for him to explain whenever he was ready, but that he had gotten into trouble once again and he'd had to leave. She didn't know where he was and she didn't know how long it'd be until we could see him again. So that was the real split for, for us. It's kind of making the hairs on my arms stand <laughs> Sorry. up. You, you were nine years old, right? Mm-hmm. Did you know what the word fugitive meant? I don't know if I did, though I do remember we weren't allowed to watch the movie The Fugitive in case That's it was funny. <laughs> the wrong impression of what Dad's life was like. But I think soon you soon learn what it was. I remember her saying going on the run. I remember it being quite abstract, the idea of the specifics of what he had done or, or what it really meant. Like I didn't think about prison. I didn't think about necessarily him being taken from us in that way I, I I approached it as a nine-year-old does my dad was gone right and I missed him and I was hurt that he'd lied to us about who he really was and who we were how was your mother when she told you was she upset was she did she try to be really calm to keep you and your sister calm my mom uh, is super stoic and strong and um is she English yes okay um <laughs> and so she didn't she didn't want to panic us. So she definitely had like a, like a steely calm and a reassurance to her, but she was definitely shaken and certainly having spoke, you know, afterwards I've learned that it was an incredibly disruptive and terrifying experience to have the trouble that they had believed was long in our past come back all those years later. Because by that point, did your father think that part of his life was over? Yes, we were living under false identities successfully, and it had been years since there'd been any type of problem. So as far as they believed, they'd stopped looking for us, um, and we could have carried on as we were. You know, my parents had separated, so there had been casualties to it, but we it looked like it was all going to be okay at that point. Which was just double the shock for your mother at that time, that day, and that conversation with you guys. Yes, and I think a lot of fear as well of what it was going to mean for us and for the family. She learned soon after that we were under surveillance, that our, in prob all probability our phones were tapped and we, we didn't know if the house was or the car was and we were being followed home from school. And I, I think those moments are, are very anxiety-inducing. It's, it's pretty frightening. And you don't know. She didn't want us to ever see her be arrested or for Dad to be arrested in front of us and to have that trauma. You know, she was trying to protect us as best as she could from that trauma, and I think she was, she was scared. Were you aware that you were being followed and that your phones may have been bugged? Did you know any of this as a child, or did you learn this as an adult later? No, she told us because we had to be careful what we were to say about Dad. So we would talk about him when I would go for walks in the countryside, and that's when we'd feel safe to, to talk about it. But other than that, we didn't talk about it at home, or we were given very strict instructions not to talk to our friends. Um, and if someone were to approach us and try to start a conversation, um, not, to, not to say anything about Dad. So I found one of the most anxiety-inducing parts of the book, for me, for, of your story, was these moments when you were desperately trying to connect with your, your father, and your mother was really trying to 
make good on letting your father still have this relationship with you, even though he was on the lam. And so you would wait until nightfall and and walk through the woods to a, a payphone in the middle of nowhere and all huddle inside until the phone rang. I mean, how did that feel? What was that like? It's funny looking back on those moments and they seem so, it feels so surreal to think that that all really happened. Um, it seems like it's out of a movie. Yes. <laughs> I mean, there's moments I'm like, I, I feel so disconnected from it now, but in many ways because I've come so far from that moment. But I remember being aware that it was potentially very dangerous and that we might be caught. And equally, at the same time, there's this sense of us all being in it together. And I think that that in some way protects you from some of the fear. There was one particular time when we first were in the phone booth together and it was the first ever phone call that we'd arranged in secret to have with Dad and none of us know how much danger this is or how heavy the surveillance is. And just as we're waiting for the phone to ring, a police car pulls up to the phone booth and we all are like, this is it. This is, you know, they're here to catch us. Mom's going to get arrested. They're going to find Dad. Everything we've been frightened of is going to happen. And it was... (laughs) <laughs> the police car just does a three-point turn and, and drives away again. And all of us, like, heave this collective sigh of relief, and then, and then the phone rings, and we'd get this distant voice of my father come and say, hi, talking to us as if it was any other phone call that we'd had in our childhood speaking to our dad. He, he never, he didn't know how much mom had told us, and he would just chat to us about our lives, about school, about our friends. He never said where he was, or he never, he took a bit about what he was doing, but it was just to stay connected. One other thing that really was remarkable to me was the anecdote about your mother arranging for you to see your father, and it was just you and your sister traveling. Was it from England to France, being ferried by strangers? (laughs) Along the way? Yes. I mean, my, my mom actually put up quite a bit of resistance. My dad is, I guess that's why uh, he was good at his line of work. He's very persuasive. And he has inherent belief that everything's going to be okay. So dad convinced her to help arrange for us to see him. How old were you? Uh, at this point, 10. Um, very little. And your sister was 12 or 12. Mm-hmm. Uh Very little. And so he arranged for his next-door neighbor to come have a meet. So I think we met him in a pub in the countryside somewhere where we wouldn't be followed. This long, protracted journey we took to get there. The mum hands us over. Her heart is breaking. We see her crying. She doesn't, everything in her, all, all the, her motherhood doesn't want to do this. But she does. She always believed it was important for us to have a relationship with our dad. And, and dad loved us. And he wanted a relationship with us. She didn't want to stand in the way of that. So she made these sacrifices to help facilitate that that relationship. And she handed us to this, this guy who we hadn't met, but he, he had a cold at the time, so he was blowing his nose the whole time, and it was our job to peel oranges for him while he was driving and hand us the, hand him the oranges in the front seat. So we instantly felt quite bonded to him, and we liked him. He was a good man. He did a good thing for us. And he drove us to the ferry, and then we got the ferry over to France. I was vomiting the whole way. I get terrible motion sickness. And then we drive from, from the ferry to, to Paris. Was someone there to pick you up, or was your father there to pick you up? No, we took the car, the car ferry over. So this he gentleman the with the way. oranges who was sneezing took you the whole way? He took us the whole way. Yeah. And he took us all the way to Paris, where we met with Dad, who was so worried about every stage of that journey, whether we would get stopped or apprehended or whether he would you know, have any 
trouble traveling with two girls that aren't his own and all these various potential hazards. And, and then we met up with Dad in Paris. And again, you know, Dad had this way of... I remember that trip has been incredibly glamorous. It was going shopping and eating moule frites and feeling like I was having an adventure with my father. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Were you anxious on the journey over? Or was this just, this is a nice man who you're taking a trip with on the ferry other than the vomiting on the ferry over? <laughs> that ferry made me sick too. Yeah, it's terrible. I was, the anxiety I remember, oddly, is less so about us being caught, though I did feel that. It was, I was worried about seeing my father again. Um, That's interesting. Hmm. We were, and um, we are, and we were incredibly close. How long had it been since you had seen him at this point? Ah, uh, it had been... At least several months. I can't remember exactly. Definitely several months, if not longer. Which feels much longer when you're Your a child. Kid, of course. Mm, yeah. Definitely. Prior to that, we'd visit him every other weekend. We'd go down to London where he lived from our house in, in the West Country and would spend the weekend with him. So he, he was a very active part of our lives until he went away. So to go for a few months without seeing him was, was pretty traumatic for us. Were your parents separated when this happened? Yes, they okay. separated after we, when we arrived back in England. They separated when I was five. Okay. Mum had had enough, <laughs> understandably so. That adds another layer of drama to when she has to gather you around oh, yeah. to tell you the man I'm separated from, who I've worked through all this anger with, now the problems are coming back. I need to protect my kids and, and, and. This is you're such a nice, well-adjusted lady. Our <laughs> listeners can't see you, so I just want to paint a picture. If you have an idea of what a child who grows up as a fugitive looks like, I want you to do a 180 because she, you are the picture of an English rose. <laughs> and your and you. your parents as well seemed very glamorous. Your mother was a model at one point. She really was a spontaneous woman. Your father seems like he was kind of a badass, like on a motorcycle, was skiing, was always doing really glamorous things. I think he had a mustache at one point that was like very <laughs> hip looking. So, yeah, so not exactly what you would imagine from your average um, drug kingpin, I guess. <laughs> no, they they didn't really fit the stereotypes. You know, my, my dad's um, middle class, New Yorker, college educated. He worked on Wall Street, but it was the 60s, and so he smoked a lot of pot, had a wild time in, in the sort of heyday of New York, met my mum, who was a young a model there at the time, and fell wildly in love with each other. And 
he started investing in getting high-grade pot delivered to New York. It, to him, was like, how do we get this drug that we're all taking and enjoying and have a great time and get rich? And then that industry was just a lot more fun to him than his job on Wall Street. He never really was a nine-to-five guy. And that ended up taking over his life. But he, in his head, it was a business thing. You know, he felt it was going to be legalized any minute. And so he was applying his Wall Street ideas to the drug business, which is why it became so successful, I think. It's very logical in your telling of the story. Yeah. <laughs> and very cinematic. Have you sold the movie rights to your book? We're, we're working on it. Oh, uh-huh. okay. Another cinematic part of, truly, of the story is the trip that tipped off the feds and, and eventually got your father arrested. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? That was my 12th birthday. So Dad and I always spent my birthdays together. And at this point, so he's been running for over two years. After one close call when he was hiding out in France, he decides he's not run far enough and he goes and ends up in St. Lucia. And there he starts actually working. Uh, he works in a, in a hotel as a manager and life seems almost kind of normal for him. He's traveling at that point with his, his young girlfriend. And he invites us out to go see him in St. Lucia. And it'd been long enough. We kind of were like, again, maybe maybe this is it. Maybe it's going to be okay now. And we'd been going out to visit him on our school holidays, wherever he was. And we'd gotten, me and my sister, pretty adept at that trip. My brother's seven and a half years older, so he was kind of having a different experience. And me and my sister, we you know we had this whole plane routine. We knew exactly what we were doing, going on these long-distance flights. So it wasn't even... I mean, we were excited about St. Lucia. That was the main thing about this trip. And we went out there for a week in half term. And while we were there, someone tipped off the authorities that Dad and I always spent my birthday together. So on my birthday, they went and raided our home in in Bath in England and pulled my mum in for questioning, searched the whole house, and were looking for some evidence of where we were and eventually found what must have been maybe a printout of tickets to, we we don't know exactly, but we assume it must have been something that we'd left that showed that we were in St. Lucia. And they they basically sent, it was a joint effort between Scotland Yard and the FBI. I think Interpol were involved as well at some point. And they sent some people to come arrest him. And mum managed to get word to us on the island and called as we were just about to leave for my birthday dinner and said that they were coming and dad had to get us off the island. And get himself off the island? She didn't care about that at that point. I think she just wanted to get us home safely back with her. And did you leave safely? Yeah. And so, did your father get arrested? Not straight away. Um, he was very good at it that, by that point. You've got to think at this point, he's been on the run for a decade of his life. So our entire childhood. And he, we don't go for dinner. We have a very worried night where we were waiting for the first flight off the island he sends me and my sister in a taxi, and we have this moment where he comes halfway in the taxi with us, and then he gets out, and we're, we're in a banana field, and he's just got a little sports bag with him, and he tells the taxi driver to take us to the airport, and we say goodbye, and I just have this image in my mind of looking out the back of the taxi and seeing my dad waving with a sports bag thrown over his shoulder at dawn and, and having no idea if I was going to see him again or when I did what that would be like. Mm. We knew it was the end of the road. There was no way mom was going to let us go see him again after a close call like that. And that for him as well, he 
He'd run out of options. There was nowhere else to go. He'd given up everything at that point. What are you running for? You know, if you can't see your family. It's so wild. <laughs> when your father did finally get caught, was everyone just relieved that it was all over <laughs> and, like, the jig was up and you didn't have to hide anymore? I mean, it just must have been such a crazy, heavy burden to bear at that point. Yeah, I think we were. There's definitely an element of relief. I think for, for my mum and the reason she stuck at it for so long, because we've talked about this a lot, and I've always sort of, you know, looking back, she was like, oh, I should have just given him in straight away. It would have saved us all a lot of heartache. That's interesting. Um, and, and him as well. All, everybody, it was right from the very get-go. Going on the run with three young children was a crazy proposition. But at the time, she didn't want them to win. She'd seen, you know, that they pursued us through her life, and we, she felt like the FBI... She didn't want the FBI to win after all this time. We've been fighting for so long and we'd lost so much. And to just give in felt impossible. And I think for Dad, too, that kept him that kept him running. It became the new normal. It became the new normal. The fight. You forget that you're, that maybe you don't have to, that there's another option. You could choose not to. And when he got caught, we definitely were relieved. I think my mom and my sister, more so than me, prison was frightening. And Was we, he sent back to prison in the United States? Yes. And you were still living in Bath in yes, England? Yes, you're faced with this... This real unknown, like, I, I didn't know anyone who was in prison. We didn't have any visual reference apart from what you see on TV and the movies, and that's pretty it's terrifying. Not good. It's yeah. not good. It's not good at all. And we didn't know how long he was facing because at first his sentence, it could have been really very severe because the new drug laws are draconian in the U.S. You're looking at life sentences for trafficking, and that was terrifying. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So from this point on, visits with your father involve visits to a prison, I'm guessing. What was your relationship like with your father afterwards? So we went to see Dad every summer in our school holidays. He was in prison out in California. And there was a strange circularity to it. You go to prison, the place where most of your crimes were committed. But that was also where I was born, and I'd never been back. So this this sense of kind of re-encountering yourself, which is really interesting, and being in a place called ostensibly that's home, America. I'm, I'm, in, I'm officially American. I've never spent any time in, in the States. My, my book's called No Way Home. It's this whole idea of what does home mean and, and how do you find it when you've lived such a nomadic life and had these big fracturing moments in, in your life that I think many people can relate to. So I would return to the States and I was curious about it. I was curious to be a sort of American version of myself. But it was very surreal. You'd 
have the you only visit prison at the weekends. So we'd go out to whatever small California town where the prisons are and stay in a motel with a friend of the family and see dad for two days. I think at the prison it's like seven hours a day. Um, we were in a prison visiting sort of picnic area, which is kind of bizarre as well, because if you kind of squint, you can not see all the barbed wire and sort of pretend you're just having a picnic and all the men happen to be wearing the same thing, um, which <laughs> we would do. Um, and you, you eat food at this vending machine and you have this long stint of time sat together with not much else to do but talk and we played cards. And in those visits, we covered a lot of the ground that I think has helped us heal the anger and resentments that had built over that time because for me from the point where I felt like we were on it together and I was rooting for dad and I wanted him to come out of this the hero of the story it was in when he was in prison that he told us the nature of his crimes and I, I wasn't bothered about the drugs you know and this part of me as a teenager I was like oh that's pretty cool my dad was a pot smuggler um, but there was another part of me who was like why didn't you quit when you had kids like once mm-hmm. you had a family how could you risk this? How did you make a decision that risked you being part of my life in a meaningful way? Mm-hmm. And that made me really angry. And I, I behaved in all the ways angry teenagers behave. And I was a pretty wild kid. Did you ever become a pot smoker? Uh, yeah, for sure. Okay. <laughs> so it isn't as though you were, re- rebe- you know, teenagers typically rebel against what their parents were doing and what they were about. And so. No, I think I kind of set out to be as bad as I could be. It's like, okay, if you, it's hard to beat that in yeah. terms of your father in prison who's a drug smuggler. Um, I was like, all right, I can, I, I'll push this. And luckily, I'd, I'd my mom to guide me and who understood the nature of rebellious teenagers, having been one herself, and guided me through that time in my life very safely and out the other side. During those prison visits, Dad and I would talk, and he had a chance to explain what he'd done and why and the decisions he'd made and and work towards some level of forgiveness. But I don't think we got there really fully, not until working on this book together. Mm. What's your relationship with him like now? I mean, it's wonderful. We, he's, we're incredibly close. Where is he? He's just moved to Florida, in fact. Can you mm-hmm. tell us where he is? <laughs> yes, yes, I can. No, he's, he's, he's out the other side. He's, right. he's living a, a, a legal, uh, happy life. Is he doing something totally boring? He's a financial manager. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty <laughs> yes. funny, too. Back to his roots, I guess, on yeah. Wall Street. Yeah. And, you know, the stock market as well is kind of just like legal form of gambling. And, Absolutely. And that's what his whole <laughs> reason was, was basically gambling. <laughs> it's not really a surprise that you became a travel writer. I would think that... All that moving around would mean that it's it feels very natural to kind of keep doing it. And having that unconventional childhood has made you eager to explore. So can you talk about some of the life lessons from childhood that you've applied to how you approach travel today? Weirdly, I never made the connection until actually relatively recently, not until someone read an early draft of my book. I was like, oh, it's, you know, it's, isn't it funny that you turned out to be a travel writer? It's like, oh, of course. <laughs> and it, it never even, I never put those things together. But yes, I I think I've just become, I'm very comfortable. You can drop me pretty much anywhere in the world and I will figure out how that place works and, and I will find my feet pretty quickly. And I, I think that's a wonderful gift. Um, and oddly, I think for my, my brothers actually, and maybe my sister to an extent, search for some of the stability and the sort of more conventional family life than I think 
than I have. But for me, I kind of took to this rhythm of traveling, of, of being on the road. And oddly, they were much better at doing it when we were younger. I complained constantly and hated moving house. And, and they just kind of got on with it, went to many more schools than I did. They definitely got the brunt of it because they were older. So they were being schooled when we were going through all the various countries. But for me, somehow I, I left on my first big trip when I was 17 on my own, and I just fell in love with being on the road and the experiences that you found and, and the version of yourself that you found there as well. Tell us some of the places you've been in the last year or so. I just got back from a magical trip to East Africa. Uh, so I was in Kenya, Uganda, and Rwanda. Was that your first time there? It was. You and went to Rwanda. I'm so envious. Kigali is now one of my favorite places I've ever been. There's just an incredible art scene there that's happening, and it's really exciting. And I, the whole trip was it was one of those big life ticks. Did you <laughs> see like, the gorillas? I need to go see. Yes, I did. Oh. Mm. Um, it's been a lifelong ambition to go do it, and I feel very lucky that I got the chance to. And then I just turned about on my heels, actually went straight to Lebanon on a story there, and that was kind of a, a, a sort of big pivot to be this to go from Kenya to London to Lebanon in the space of a week, a week maybe. <laughs> it's, yeah. But again, you, I land and I, I get out on the road and I talk to people and, and then it makes sense somehow. I'm sure there's downsides to it too. Do you do any travel with any members of your family? Yes. I, me and my sister have traveled a lot together. We actually both quit our jobs and moved to South America when I was 24 uh, and had a big six-month beautiful journey there. All um, over South America? We based ourselves in um, Buenos Aires and then... Oh, we come on. When you're 24 around. years old, how much fun <laughs> did you guys have? Yeah. It was it was wonderful. Yeah, lots yeah. of late nights dancing. Yeah, it's not even late nights in, in, in Buenos Aires. It's like early morning. Uh-huh. They don't start yeah. like 1 a.m. Yeah. We had to like acclimatize. Like, well, you don't eat till midnight. Right. <laughs> you just stick to a London schedule. You're just doing it in the other hemisphere. Right? That's, a very, that's very good advice. When, when we had first talked on the phone, you had mentioned the phrase overdeveloped runaway complex, which I just thought was a really clever (laughs) self-diagnosis. What does that mean? I feel like I have a propensity, as in when things become a little bit difficult, to thinking the solution is leaving. And by leaving, like, oh, this is quite painful what I'm going through right now. I know what I'll do. I'll go to Cuba. Or, hmm, things aren't working out quite the way I'd like to. I'll move to New York. Or whatever the the problem is, I find the solution is generally leaving the country. Travel as therapy, though, is the other way of looking at that. I like that. That's a more positive spin than a... Oh, I'm glass half full. Yeah. (laughs) I need that. But does it work for you? I mean, I feel like it's worked out so far. Mm. And maybe partly because of that perspective that you find when you're traveling. So whatever it is that you're going through sometimes, and luckily for me, I've never had to address the kind of um, problems that my parents were addressing when they went on the, on the run. Maybe for me, it's possible to solve the type of problems that I'm encountering by traveling. Tyler, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And thank you so much for sharing this unbelievable story with us that I really do hope gets made into a movie one day. Your book, which I'm sure everybody's going to want to pick up, is called No Way Home, A Memoir of Life on the Run. Can people find you on the socials? Do you post? Do you tweet? Yeah. Do you, can I'm, we follow I'm your adventures? Uh, at Tyler Writes is probably the best place to find me. T-Y-L-E-R-W-R-I-T-E-S. That is correct. Great. Thank well, you. thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. And that's our show. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And, you know, leave us a five-star review. 
Away to Go is a production of iHeartRadio and Fathom. You can find the details we talked about in the show notes and on our website, fathomaway.com. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter when you're there. You can get in touch with us anytime at podcast at fathomaway.com and follow us on all social media at at fathomwaytogo. Please tag your best travel photos, hashtag travel with fathom. If you want to really go deep on the travel inspiration, pick up a copy of our book, Travel Anywhere and Avoid Being a Tourist. I'm Geraldine Gerba. And I'm Pavia Rosati. And we'd like to thank our producer, editor, and mixer, Marcy Depina, and our executive producer, Christopher Hasiotis. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.